Well, last week with the running of Daytona, the NASCAR season is officially up and running. I know very inspiring for some and completely irrelevant for a whole lot of others, right? But, you know, I think NASCAR can actually kind of be inspiring for everybody. You know, if you'll watch the first 10 laps and the last 10 laps and then be inspired to take a big giant nap right in the middle, amen? I mean, it's good for something if, if not for that good long nap on Sunday afternoon. You know, growing up in Texas, and I think it's changed now, but, but during the 70s and 80s, uh, that you didn't hear a whole lot about NASCAR. That wasn't in the news. We, we didn't keep up with that out there. And so it was kind of a new thing when in the early 90s, Karen and I moved to, to South Carolina, which was, was very much NASCAR nation, and uh, started keeping up with it. We started kind of coming into NASCAR. It was the time kind of the Jeff Gordon era started. And, and so we started watching, or I say we, she'd probably say you're using that we, word we pretty loosely. Uh, I started watching NASCAR and uh, getting a good long nap every Sunday afternoon. And uh, you know, it doesn't take long, you know, especially with as many races as they run in a season, it doesn't take long before you can say, man, I've watched hundreds of races. A- and I had. And then it was, but it was not until we moved here that I actually had the opportunity to go to a race. And I think we'd been here a, a year or two, and it was, of course, a, a Saturday. I think it was the spring race, and uh, we had a chance to go. Now, we had an event up here at church that, that day that we had to, to come to first, and so we didn't, you know, get to do all the tailgating and all the festivities beforehand. As a matter of fact, when we got there, the race had already started. And, and so we're, we're walking up to the, to the track. There's no crowds. You ever seen RIR with no people? They were all inside. But uh, walking up to it, I mean, there was nobody because they were like, I mean, it was just the very start, maybe 10, 15 laps into the race. And so we're walking up to the, to the track and, and we're, we're going into the tunnel. You know how you go into the tunnel and you see the track and you'll go up to your seat and everything. And so Karen and I are, are walking up the tunnel and, you know, you can see the track and you see just this blur of color. And, and I mean, I knew what it was, but without even thinking about it, I said, what is that? And, and right as it was coming out of my mouth, I realized, oh my gosh, those are cars. And folks, it, was, it is phenomenal how fast those cars are going. I mean, I really, it's like I, for the first time, respected those guys as athletes. The, the speed they're going, the grueling nature of that. I got out there. Now, folks, realize I could have stood there and said, I have watched hundreds of races. And yet, standing there in that moment, for, for just a matter of seconds, it was like I was seeing something I'd never seen before. It was like I was experiencing something that I have, I have never experienced before. Interesting how just a little different angle, a little different perspective on something, and all of a sudden something you thought you were very familiar with is, is like brand new. You know, folks, what I just described can actually be true of our relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, I would imagine a lot of us in here, we would say, I know a lot of things about Jesus. I mean, I've listened to a lot of sermons. I've been in a lot of Bible studies. I've, I've studied the Gospels. I've read about Jesus. Did a Bible study. We would, we, you could list things that you know about him. Certain stories, parables, teachings, maybe names of his. You would know lots of things. But if you'll stop and think about it, I think this has been true in my life. With as much as I might know about him, I can kind of get one-dimensional in my understanding and my look at Jesus. I might know a lot of things, but if you're like me, there's something maybe your personality just kind of tends toward and you anchor toward that in Jesus. 
You know, for instance, uh, John chapter 1, Jesus is being talked about and says that he is full of grace and truth. Now, he's full of both of those things, full of grace, full of truth. Those are both things we could study and understand about Christ. But you know what our personality does? It tends towards one of these, I think. I mean, I think some of us, we just, our personality, we kind of like that thought, that idea. Jesus being full of grace. Man, he's always there for us. He loves us. He, for, he forgives us. He accepts us. And we just, we really like that, that very personal, that warm feeling that we get with Christ. Others, maybe your personality is such that you like thinking more about the truth of Jesus. You're a little bit more type A personality. You, you like the rules. What's right? What's wrong? What's the direction? What's the truth? And, and you tend a little bit more toward that. Now, I'm not saying either one of these is wrong. It's when we get stuck in one of these to the exclusion of the other. And that's just two aspects of Jesus. There's a lot of different things we can know and understand about Christ. But when we get stuck looking at Him in just one way, we're not really engaging the whole Christ. We're not really engaging. We may know a lot of things, but we're not really engaging with Him in relationship with all that He is and with, with all that is taught about Him. What I hope we can do maybe during the month of March is just kind of get a fresh perspective again. I'm calling this series Mosaic. If you want to know what a mosaic is, look at the front of your bulletin. That's a mosaic. It, it takes different, different materials, maybe takes different lights and things that stand on their own. But then you bring them all together and you create a bigger picture. And that's what we kind of have with Christ. We got individual things we can study and learn and know, but we bring them all together and we get a bigger and a fuller picture with the idea then being, being then that we have a fuller response, a fuller response of faith, a, a fuller response of obedience, a fuller response of worship. Now, I'm not suggesting that in, in two, three, four sermons, we're going we're gonna to know and study everything there is to know about Christ. But just look at a couple of angles. Look at a couple of perspectives with a prayer that we get a fresh perspective, a, a fresh experience with this person we call the Christ. We're going to start today by looking at somebody that actually invites you and me to come and see Jesus, would you turn with me this morning to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, we've got some in the chairs in front of you. If it's not right where you can reach it, it's there on the row. You just kind of point down the row and somebody would be happy to hand you one. John chapter 1, four books into your New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You get to Acts or Romans, you've gone too far. Go back. John chapter 1, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 43. It says there, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip. You might want to note that little phrase there. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethesda, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good Come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Man, come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. 
Doesn't that seem like an awfully big response for just saying, I saw you standing under a tree? We're going to see if we can understand that a little bit. Verse 50, Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? Oh, you're going to see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Our passage starts off with the, with the disciple, the apostle named Philip. Uh, that word, by the way, for you horse lovers means lover of horses, Philip. So if you, you love horses and you got a baby coming, it's a boy, you might try Philip. A girl, probably not so much. But that's what that name means. And notice that it says that Jesus found Philip. You know, as you go through the Gospels, a lot of times it is Jesus calling somebody that has came, come searching. They came out to hear him. They'd heard about him. Maybe they, they wanted to see some miracles. They wanted to see some healing. But it is Jesus that goes and finds Philip. Now, Philip is what I call kind of the in-between apostle. And, and what I mean, there's a couple of them that are in-between. What I mean by that is you've got a group of apostles on one end in which there's a lot of print. You know, James and John and Peter. Man, as you're reading the story of Jesus, you read a lot of the story of James and John and, and Peter. And then you've got other apostles down at the other end. Man, you don't read anything about. you got Bartholomew and Thaddeus. Somebody here right now is thinking, there's an apostle named Thaddeus? Yeah, Thaddeus is an apostle. He made the first string, top 12. Yeah, we don't know anything about him. Now, Philip... He's not James and John and Peter. He's not Bartholomew and Thaddeus. He's kind of right here in the middle. Not a whole lot written about him, but there's, there are some things. You, you see him speak up. You, you, you see him do some things. But the, the interesting thing about Philip is he just seems like he's always a step behind. Philip is the guy who he, he, he asks a question that Jesus just answered. He says, oh no, this can't be done right when Jesus is about to do it. <laughs> you know, he just seems like he's a... It, it's Philip that had to be found. It, 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 you know, Philip's just a step behind. You know what? I think there's probably, there's probably some folks in here today that need to take that as good news. I mean, really, you think about it. You, you might be in the quietness of your heart right now saying, you know, I'm kind of searching out this Jesus thing. I, I, I think. I don't know. To be honest with you, when I'm in this room, when I'm around this context, I feel a step behind. I would never raise my hand because I know I would ask the question that was just answered. Hey, you know what? Jesus has got a spot for you. He's not just calling people that are spot on with the exact answer, know exactly what's coming next and what to do. I mean, if you feel a step behind, you know what Jesus says to you? Come on, come follow me. And, and Philip does. And the very next thing we see Philip doing is going and getting Nathaniel. Make a little note to yourself there in your Bible, especially if it's your Bible. Maybe write out right there, followers of Jesus, go get followers of Jesus. Do you see that? He becomes a follower and the very next thing he does is he goes and gets somebody. And he goes and he engages Nathaniel. Now, it seems like in what he says to Nathaniel that Philip and Nathaniel probably have an ongoing relationship. I mean, these are two guys. They meet down at Hardy's every Thursday morning for coffee and a biscuit. They crack open their Old Testament and, and they've been studying the Messiah. 
Hey, what do you think he's going to look like? What do you think he's going to do? Where's he going to come from? And they compare notes about what they've seen in the Old Testament, what they learned in Isaiah, what they learned in the Psalms. And this is just kind of a constant study and discussion going for them. That's already there in their relationship. And then Philip, Philip comes up to him, Nathaniel, ah, you know that guy we always talk about? I think this is him. I think the guy we study in the scriptures, I think this is him. And Nathaniel says, from Nazareth? Are you kidding me? Now, I don't know why Nathaniel kind of, you know, disses on, on Nazareth there. Uh, there. There's nothing in history that would suggest here's the bad reputation that, that Nazareth had. I think it might just be kind of a small town thing, you know? I mean, the Messiah, that's kind of big, isn't it? That, that's just so big and, and so significant. How can it come from something so small and insignificant as Nazareth? Now, I'm thinking, man, you should have seen where he was born. How about that? But notice what Philip says. Hey man, come and see. You know, I wonder if sometimes the reason we do not as followers of Christ go and get other followers is because we're afraid we don't know how to answer questions. Man, if I invited them, what if they asked me this? What if, what if they said, tell me about that? I don't know what I would say. What if they actually debate me? What if they even say, I don't believe in that stuff? I, I don't know what I would say. Do you notice here, Philip doesn't engage Nathaniel in a debate. He doesn't try to say, well, now you remember in Micah, it says Bethlehem. I mean, clearly this is a small, insignificant. He, he, you know, he doesn't try to prove anything, doesn't try to engage him. I'm not saying there's never a time when we want to be able to engage. But folks, we should probably never be shy about just saying this. Man, would you come and see? Would you, would you come and see? And so Nathaniel says, yeah, because that's what a lot of your friends will say if you say, come and see. They'll say, sure, I'll check it out. And so Nathaniel goes to see Jesus, and he comes walking up to Jesus, and, and Jesus says, now there's a stand-up guy. That, that's all he's saying in that phrase. Man, there's a guy of integrity. You see, Nathaniel, now that's, a, you know, his handshake, it's gold. It's better than a contract. You know, Nathaniel, his word's his word. He says what he means, and he means what he says. You can, you can count on Nathaniel. He sees Nathaniel coming and say, now there's a guy of integrity. Now, I'm thinking if I'm walking up to Jesus, and he sees me coming, and he says, now there's a guy of integrity, I'm probably going to go, oh, oh, shucks. No. But Nathaniel doesn't do that. He doesn't act humble. He doesn't act surprised. He doesn't act anything. He, say, he just says, how do you know me? How do you know to make a comment on my life like that? And then Jesus says, hey, Nathaniel, when you were over there under the fig tree, I saw that. And then you see this huge response. Here's Nathaniel who, who's kind of skeptical, not really believing anything. And all of a sudden, he's coming out calling him the son of God. How do you get that out of saying, I saw you standing under a fig tree? But well, you kind of got to understand what's going on there in their culture. You know, this morning I got up at, at uh, 4.55 and uh, got the coffee, dogs taken out, did all that. And then I went up to my attic. I got a room up there and turned on the light and I sat down and I began to spend some time in prayer and in the scriptures with the Lord. I bet you got a place like that. Whether you do that every day or a couple of times a week or just whenever the, the mood hits you, you've got maybe a place. Maybe you go out to the kitchen table 
Maybe it's in your room. You've got somewhere where you go and kind of get alone and get away to to be with the Lord. For most of us, I'm guessing that's going to be inside. Because there's two very important things inside. Heating and air conditioning. That's kind of our culture. That's kind of the way we are. Well, you know what? That's not their culture. Their homes were very small. Their homes were really for no other purpose than just to get out of the element. I mean, you, you slept inside. Temperature was the same inside and outside. And it was kind of small. You, you never went inside to think about getting alone to be with God. No, you would go outside for that. And, and a Jew would often pray standing up. And he would often pray under a fig tree. Kind of get away in the cool of the shade. And, and, and so the fig tree kind of became symbolic of kind of a place of prayer and meditation. So perhaps what is happening here is Nathaniel's gotten up early one morning before everybody else. You know, wife's asleep, the kids are asleep, and he goes outside and about 100 yards off the corner of the house, there's a fig tree over there, and he goes over and begins to pray and talk with the Lord. And that's when Jesus says, hey, you know that time? Nobody around, nobody out there, nobody saw you? Yeah, I was there, I heard that. Oh, that's kind of a goosebump moment, isn't it? Yeah, and that's exactly what it was for Nathaniel. Man, he, he, I mean, he goes from being skeptical and blows right past a great holy man or a, or a great prophet or a great teacher and says, you are the son of God. And that's a big statement, isn't it, to call somebody? I, I kind of wonder, does, does he even fully grasp what he is saying in that confession? You know, it's interesting, not just in, in John, but if you go through the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it is Nathaniel that gives us the first verbal confession of who Jesus is. Now, if you look a few verses earlier in John 1, you see John the Baptist saying some pretty, pretty big things about Jesus. James, John, Peter, they're already following Jesus, and so you would assume they think some pretty high things about him. But it is out of the lips of Nathaniel that we get the first confession of who somebody believes Jesus to be. He not only says, you're the son of God, but also says, and you're the king of Israel. Now remember, he's just been identified as an Israelite. Jesus said, you're an Israelite. And then you see him just seconds later say, and you are my king. You know, we, I don't know that in a democracy we can really appreciate what it means to call somebody a king. I mean, we, we look up to our governmental leaders, our, our governor, our president. As a matter of fact, if our president, we, we might even call him or refer to him as, as the most powerful man in the world. Or at least certainly one of the, the top two or three most powerful men in the world. We'll, we'll honor the position. We'll respect the position. We'll look up to the person. But we don't see ourselves as subservient to the person. No, not in a democracy. He's just one of us. He, he is an equal. I, I, I'm not under him as a, as a servant. But you see, in a monarchy, that's exactly how you saw yourself. You looked up to that king. That, that king, he owns the territory. He owns the lands. My life, my well-being, my protection is under the king. And when he calls him a king, he's saying, I am subservient to him. Well, that's a lot of statement, isn't it? And Jesus says, you're, you're impressed with the whole fig tree thing? Man, you ain't seen nothing yet. You're going to love it when I raise the dead. You're going to think it's really cool when I go walking across the water. Oh, and there's going to be this storm, and I'm just going to say, shh, and the storm's going to stop. You're going to be really impressed with that. 
You see that phrase there where Jesus says, you're going to see the angels ascending and descending. Folks, I think basically what Jesus is saying there is, hey, Nathaniel, in the next three years, you're about to see a massive collision. You're about to see a massive intersection between heaven and earth. And all the power of God is going to just be displayed right in front of your eyes. Because I am what you just confessed. What you just confessed. You know, I would, I would bet many of us, most of us, maybe almost everybody in this room, we would confess, I believe Jesus to be the Son of God. I bet that'd be true for most of us in here. But, but what do we mean? Maybe I'd ask the same question of myself and of you that I would ask of Nathaniel. When you confess that, did you, did you fully grasp what that means? What, what does that mean to you? How big is this Son of God? How big is your God? Boy, we could go to a lot of passages in the Gospels, a lot of passages in the New Testament that would describe just how big it is that Jesus is the, the Son of God. Man, I think of one passage, Hebrews 1, 1 to 3, says that, that everything was created through Jesus. That Jesus is the heir of all things. In other words, folks, everything came from Jesus and everything is returning to Jesus. And then it says that he is the radiance. He's the brightness, the shining. He is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact not kind of, sort of, not nearby, not a lot like. He is the exact representation of God. In other words, folks, Jesus is eternally and entirely God and the agent by which this universe got here. In other words, without Jesus, there's no you. Without Jesus, there is no you also says in John chapter 1 that Jesus is God's glory. What, what is God's glory? Well, God's glory is the manifestation of God. It's the bright shining presence of God. Glory is when we see how big and how powerful he is and that we're not. You know, when you look at mountains and you see how awesome and great and majestic they are and you should think, boy, I couldn't do that. That's God's glory. When you look into the night sky and you see the expanse and the vastness of the stars and boy, you feel kind of small and insignificant, that's God's glory. When you come to understand the gospel and you realize I can't, no more than I can create mountains or put stars in the sky, can I make myself righteous? But God can and God will through his son, Jesus Christ. That's God's glory. Jesus is God's glory. John chapter 14, verse 7, Jesus said, If you see me, you've seen the Father. If you know me, you know the Father. There's absolutely nothing missing. Nothing else arrives when the Father gets there. You know the Son, you know the Father. So what does it mean when we confess that Jesus is the Son of God. It means we have a God, right? It means we recognize there is a God and I'm not it. I'm not Him. And if we understand that, then that means we now know that life is not about me, it's about Him. 
Life is about God's glory, not my glory. Life is about God's plan and God's agenda, not my plan and my agenda. I serve God. He doesn't serve me. But we get that absolutely backwards, don't we? Not in our confessions. Not in our beliefs. I doubt anybody in here has ever said, well, I believe God serves me. I believe the whole purpose and the reason for God's existence is to advance my glory and to advance my agenda. I doubt anybody has said that. I think it's practically how we probably all end up living at times. Think, think about your prayers this last week. What was discussed in your prayer time with God? Maybe a better way to say it is, did, did God check in with you or did you check in with God? Who got marching orders for that day? Hey, uh, God, here's a, a list of things I need to happen. I need you to go here and do this. I need you to help that person. I need you to fix that person. God, you could just remove that person off the planet. That'd be okay. I need you to help me here. I need you to do this. I need you to do... Who checks in with who? When you meet with God in prayer, do you leave with a sense of God's marching orders for you for the day? Who is serving who in this relationship? Remember when Jesus said, why do you call me Lord? And yet you don't do what I say. In other words, Jesus is saying, hey, listen, call me Lord and do what I say. But if you're not going to do what I say, then stop. If you're not going to serve me, if you're not going to live for me, if you're not going to live for my plan, my agenda, and my glory, then stop calling me the Son of God. Stop calling me the Lord. Stop. You see, if we understand Him to be the Son of God, the King of Israel, our King, the King of all kings, that means we come up under Him to serve Him. You know, there's a lot of different ways we could kind of unwrap this idea about Jesus being the Son of God. We could look at his covenantal sonship. Jesus comes and as he walks on this earth, he lives in perfect obedience to the Father. He perfectly lives out the will of the Father. They live in a perfect covenant relationship. We could talk about the messianic sonship of Jesus. He is the Messiah. He is God's son. He is God's representative on this earth to bring God's kingdom to this earth. We could talk about his personal sonship because, you see, Jesus actually is the Son of God. Not as a symbol, not as a metaphor, not as a neat idea. No, he is the Son of God. You remember when Moses was at the burning bush and he asked God, he said, what's your, what's your name? What did God say? God gave him what we consider to be kind of that personal name of God, that, that holy, sacred name of God. He said, my name is, I am, in the Hebrew, Yahweh. Now fast forward into the New Testament. Those opening pages, very first pages of the New Testament, Matthew, we see Gabriel going in a dream to Joseph to kind of clear up this whole concept of, of his fiance being pregnant. This is a problem. And he says, hey, no, listen. In case she conceived by the Holy Spirit, the child in her is going to be the Son of God, and it's going to be a boy, and you are to name him Jesus. That's what we call him in Aramaic, Jesus. In the Hebrew language, his name was Yeshua or Yahweh. That name, Jesus, means Yahweh our salvation. In other words, the Father, just like we do, gave his Son his 
personal name. Jesus is the Son of God. Yet in this moment right here with Nathaniel, I'm not so sure right here in this second that the issue is how deeply, how biblically, how theologically can we unwrap this concept, this statement of Jesus being the Son of God. But the issue seems to be, do you see Him as the Son of God and do you respond in Him that way? Has it changed your life forever that you confessed Him to be the Son of God? I hate that phrase, changed your life forever, because we use it as such a cliche in the church, don't we? Ah, it changes our lives. Oh, my life has been changed. When I think the reality is we can say that Jesus is the Son of God and it doesn't even change this afternoon. I can come in here and sing and profess my faith that Jesus is the Son of God and it affects nothing about this week. When in reality, when I'm confessing that He is the Son of God, it should change everything. I enter my world thinking, how do I live out His plan, His agenda, and let His glory be seen? I enter my marriage, my finances, my parenting, my friendships, the job, school. Everywhere I go, it is for one express purpose. So that the King of all kings and the Son of God's plan and agenda is lived out in my life. And whether I'm happy or not, rich or not, healthy or not, folks, I have to think, I have to say to a certain degree, is utterly irrelevant. The only real issue in life, the only real issue when I get in bed tonight is did I faithfully serve and obey my God and my King? Oh man, I, gosh, Jesus did, that's really over the top. Jesus wasn't meaning all that, was he? Jesus wasn't saying all that, was he? Jesus has an invitation for you. It's found in Mark chapter 8, verse 34. It says, if any man wants to follow me, he must deny. Deny himself. Have you denied yourself? Have you denied yourself anything? You you deny. Well, what does that mean? Well, let me take it a step further, Jesus says. You pick up your cross. You know, I think in the church, the concept of picking up the cross means pick up a good opportunity to whine and complain. I mean, think think about it. How do we use that phrase? Oh, that's my cross to bear. Is that what Jesus is saying right there? Oh, that's my cross to bear. Folks, when you picked up your cross, when Jesus said, I invite you to pick up your cross, he's saying, I invite you to pick up the instrument of your death. That that first step where you begin to follow me is the place where you cease to exist and I begin to live through you. I love the way Paul said it in Galatians 2.20. He said, I don't live anymore. It's no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, deny yourself, die to yourself, and come follow me. Is that what your life and my life looked like this past week? Where's Randy? Man, Randy's gone. All I see is this guy looks like it's, it's all Jesus there. Folks, I'm confident if you'd have watched any of my life this week, you'd have seen plenty of Randy. 
You'd have seen plenty of my agenda, plenty of my plans, and you'd have seen plenty of my glory. That's not okay. It's not okay to say he's the son of God and nowhere report to him. Only the son of God has the kind of authority to issue that kind of invitation on your life and in my life. Let's pray.